Well, welcome back to our tour through the Bible class. For the past several months, we've been steadily going through each book of the Old Testament. And having traveled from Genesis through Malachi, we arrive at a pivotal page turn, one that takes us into the New Testament. So to prepare us for this transition, we're going to spend our time today looking at an overview of the entire New Testament. Then, in the next weeks to come, we will continue our book-by-book tour through the Bible. So would you bow your heads with me, let's pray, and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, we've seen in your word already your amazing promises, your glory, your power, your might on display in creation, in covenant promises, in all these works that you've done. And Lord, we want to declare that you are glorious and reign over all. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the salvation you have provided for us. And we ask that you would bless our time together today as we seek to understand your word rightly. May your church be edified and build up through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our goal in this tour through the Bible class is to equip believers to read and understand God's word. So often we can get lost in the details or the distance of time between the Bible when it was written and our lives today. But zooming out to see the big picture often brings clarity and understanding. And since the Bible is the inspired word of God and the revelation of himself, it is worthy of our study. It's worth taking the time to see the big picture so that we can rightly know God, his purposes that he is accomplishing to bring about glory for his great name. And as we look today specifically at an overview of the New Testament, There are a few topics for us to cover as we continue our tour through the Bible. The first topic is the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament. The New Testament truly is a continuation of the story that was begun in the Old. We don't see the New Testament as a second Bible or the really good stuff, so to speak. As Christians, we follow one book, the Bible, and In this one book, there are two major sections, the Old Testament and the New. But both are breathed out by God. Both have been preserved by God. And both are equal in value and authority. And although this is a continuation, there are major divisions between these two books. That's why there's a New Testament that marks this new beginning and these new transitions that are starting to happen in God's plan of redemption. So one of the things you will notice through our study will be this idea of continuity and discontinuity. What is continuing and the same, and what is distinct? What's different? And each of our teachers, as we go through these books as an overview, will show and highlight some of these things. And it's not because God's plans have changed, but it's because God's plan is being accomplished. And it's bringing about these amazing blessings for the entire world God has providentially written down in Scripture the progressive unfolding of redemption from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And we ought to marvel at his grace and praise him for his faithfulness to keep his promises. And as those who are blessed to live with the entire story in our laps, we need to understand how to read it rightly. 
We need to avoid the temptation to see the New Testament as a sort of lens for reinterpreting the old, or we need to make sure that we don't have this sort of New Testament priority or even an Old Testament priority. What we ought to have is a passage-centric priority that seeks to understand what God has inspired in its immediate context. The New Testament does give us new information, And it even comments on the Old Testament as God is progressively through history moving it forward to fulfill all that he has promised. We need to understand what the author intended for the original audience in each context so we can rightly understand God's revelation of himself throughout each stage of redemptive history. The New Testament covers the most significant era in the history of mankind. It's when God became man in the person of Jesus Christ to accomplish salvation. And understanding that it is a continuation of the story in the Old Testament established and a transitional period brought about through the person and work of Jesus Christ is essential for our understanding of the New Testament. And this transition is seen even more clearly in the setting of the New Testament. As we read through the New Testament, you need to not just understand the relationship between the old and new, but we need to grasp our second topic, and that's the setting of the New Testament. As we have been studying through the Old Testament, we've established much of this setting leading up to the New Testament period. We saw the storyline from Adam and Eve to the establishment of God's covenant people through Abraham, the nation of Israel. And we saw the consequences of their hard-heartedness toward God. But God was not done with them. In the last book of the Old Testament, the people of Israel, although under Persian persecution and rule, had been permitted to return to their promised land. But that is still around 400 B.C. That's 400 years before Christ shows up on the scene. And when he comes, things are different than in Malachi's day. So what is it that happened This time is often referred to as the silent period, and the reason it's referred to that way is because there was no new revelation given by God during these years. But although God did not speak, he was certainly at work. During this intertestamental period, God was bringing about exactly what he had revealed to the prophet Daniel back in Babylon. God had revealed that he alone is the Most High God, and is sovereign over all kingdoms and will reign forever. And he showed this by telling the people ahead of time about future earthly empires, about their rise and their fall. About a hundred years after Malachi, Alexander the Great conquered the Medo-Persian Empire and established Greece as a superpower over the known world. And part of Alexander's goal in his conquest was to unify his empire through the infusion of Greek culture. And although he died at a young age, his plan for the Hellenization of the world really did work. Greek culture was foundational to society from 300 BC to 300 AD. And although Greece fell from power, their language and their culture dominated the land during Christ's coming and the establishment of his church. Prior to the New Testament, Greek was the common tongue, the common language, so much so that the Old Testament was even translated into Greek during this period. This is referred to as the Septuagint, 
And this was done so that the scriptures were in the common tongue, even of the Jews at that time. During this in-between period, many Jews had returned to the promised land, but many others also were dispersed abroad. They stayed in foreign lands and spread throughout the empire. Because of the exile that they had experienced, they began to set up these buildings called synagogues, which became prevalent as a gathering place for the Jews. Their inaccessibility to the temple at that time led them to construct these buildings in other lands. And they were even set up throughout Judea after their return. Synagogues were gathering places for the instruction and teaching of God's word. And God brought all of these things about in preparation for the propagation of the gospel. We see in the book of Acts, the apostles strategically used these meeting places to proclaim the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And the Lord established and strengthened his church through the teaching of his word in the common tongue, in Greek. Through copies even of the Septuagint that were housed in the synagogues around the world. And through the inspired writings that the New Testament authors penned in Greek so that they could be declared to everyone, so they could be heard, so they could be believed. Although synagogues grew in popularity, the temple remained the only place for sacrifice. We've seen in our study through the post-exilic prophets the emphasis on rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And although it paled in comparison to the splendor of Solomon's temple, it had been rebuilt. But when Alexander the Great died, the empire was split amongst his four generals. And around 200 BC, a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes began persecuting the Jews. He is infamously known for sacrificing a pig on a pagan altar that he had put in the temple. This led to a rise of Jewish resistance and created a spirit of nationalism and opposition to foreign authority. This very attitude continued amongst the Jews and is seen throughout the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. Just before 60 BC, the Greek Empire was dissolving and Rome began to rule the known world. They did allow local governments to continue, but made it clear that they were the one that was in control of the entire empire. They could set up or tear down local rulers according to the command of Caesar. And one of those rulers was King Herod. King Herod sought to gain favor with the Jews and took on a project to mend and improve and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But soon after the project was completed, the temple was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. The other significant development, another significant development from this in-between period was the structure of Jewish authority. In the Old Testament, the ruling power came from the line and tribe of Judah, specifically through King David. But by the first century AD, power had shifted to the religious sector. Through political intrigue, a line of priests came to hold political sway, which resulted in a group called the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 powerful religious Jews. This group includes two primary parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, names were and groups were familiar with. The Pharisees were the conservatives who resisted Greek culture and influence. They wanted to follow the Mosaic law, but they elevated their interpretation and even their applications to be equal to God's law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the liberals. 
They absorbed the culture around them, and they held the law more loosely. They read and understood the law based on modern Greek philosophy, which led them to deny much of God's word. So, tensions were high as Jews faced persecution under the impressive rule of foreigners. Jews, Jewish rule had shifted, rather, to uh, the religious sector rather than the line of King David. And the common tongue was Greek as the Romans ruled the known world where the Jews had been spread abroad throughout. Much of the backdrop changes as we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew. But we are still in the same world as we read. Especially as we read through the gospel narratives, what we must remember is that it is still very much an Old Testament world. Jews were living and abiding under the Mosaic law. They were still making sacrifices in the temple for their sins. They were waiting for their promised Redeemer King, the Anointed One, the Messiah who would fulfill all of God's promises to the nation Israel, specifically the promises of a forever king to rule his forgiven people in a physical land that was promised to them. That's why when Jesus claimed to be a greater authority than Moses, they hated and rejected him. When Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, people anticipated this political freedom, or they called him a blasphemer. And when the apostles in Acts start applying their freedom from the law in what they could eat or regarding circumcision, they were greatly resisted by Jewish Christians. Remembering these aspects of the setting helps us to understand the context of the New Testament time period, the one in which Jesus lived the one in which the authors of the New Testament lived and wrote the scriptures as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But not only are we benefited by knowing the setting of the New Testament, we also are helped as we seek to understand our third topic, which is the composition of the New Testament. That is, how we got the New Testament scriptures and the genres they were written in. First, just as a comparison, we can observe that God brought about the composition of the Old Testament and the New Testament very differently. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the language of God's covenant people, and it covers several thousands of years of history. It had 39 books, 929 chapters, and about 31 authors. But the New Testament was written in Greek, the language of all people of the world at that time. It covers only 70 years of history in 27 books, 260 chapters, and only by about nine authors. So the time frame of writing is drastically different. The Old Testament was covered and written in about 1,000 years, spanning multiple generations and cultural influences. The New Testament was written over a period of only 50 years, within a single generation. But how do we know that the 27 books of our New Testament truly are scripture, truly are God's word. This brings up the subject of canonicity. Canon simply refers to a standard or measuring stick. It is beneficial for us to understand how the New Testament books came to be part of the canon of scripture. Our New Testament books are those that have passed the test and met the standard of being the inspired word of God. We must remember that the books of the Bible were not arbitrarily picked by individuals. The Jews didn't decide what they wanted in the Old Testament, and the church didn't just select what they wanted in the New. The writings were the very word of God, 
even before they were included in the canon. The process of canonization was the process, rather, of recognizing those books that are already the words of God. Although Jesus never wrote a book in the New Testament, he did speak with authority and power as God himself. And in John 14, 25, and 26, he spoke to his apostles, saying, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus was indicating that the Holy Spirit would inspire the writings of the New Testament through his apostles. So our test for finding out the canon of Scripture, recognizing it, must include the apostolic authority, apostolic authorship, and apostolic teaching. Matthew, John, and Peter were all apostles of Jesus during his ministry here on earth. Paul was not one of the twelve disciples, but was appointed as an apostle by Jesus himself when he was saved and commissioned on the road to Damascus. Mark was not an apostle, but had a close connection with Paul and especially Peter. Mark likely wrote his gospel from the perspective of Peter's memories. Luke was not an apostle, but traveled with Paul and gathered many eyewitness accounts from much of the apostles directly. Jude and James were half-brothers of Jesus and closely connected with the apostles. And the author of Hebrews, although unknown and uncertain, is either Paul or it's someone in his circle, since the author mentions at the end of his book, Timothy, who would have been traveling with Paul in his missionary journeys. Those are the nine men, authors of the New Testament. We would have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, Jude, and the author of Hebrews. They're all either apostles or they were personally connected with them. Their writings are all authentically from them and were accepted widely by the early church as the word of God, even before the entire canon was complete. We see in the New Testament, Peter referring to Paul's writings as scripture, and Paul even refers to the book of Luke as scripture as well. However, there were other books evaluated in the canonization process that didn't make the cut. Some because they were not written by an apostle, others because they claimed to be written by an apostle, but they in fact were not. This was discovered because recognizing scripture was not merely a popularity survey, it was also observed in the content of those writings. And the content of those other writings did not line up with the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. All scripture had to have the authoritative stamp of an apostle and be consistent with their teaching. So we have our 27 books of the New Testament today because God inspired and preserved them for his church to recognize them as authoritative and inerrant. But beyond how we got our New Testament, we need to understand the genres they were written in, as this will inform us how to read rightly through the books of the New Testament. God used four primary genres to communicate the life-changing truths revealed in the first century. The first genre is the Gospels. The Gospel genre refers to the specific books that record the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospel accounts in the New Testament. They each contain a large amount of history from Jesus' ministry, 
But these books are not merely historical or biographical records, and that wasn't their intent. That's why we don't have in the Gospels a sequentially ordered timeline of Jesus' life. But even though they were not written chronologically, they were written logically. The authors were intentionally weaving true historical records of the life of Christ together to communicate specific truths. They did this to show the eternally significant truth about who Jesus was and what he had done. And each author was writing to a specific audience with a purpose of showing the true person and work of Jesus Christ. Matthew wrote as a Jew, primarily to a Jewish audience. And throughout his gospel, he shows messianic prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilled in the very life of Jesus. He's trying to pile up this overwhelming evidence that Jesus was from the line of Abraham through the line of the King David and is the promised Messiah, the forever king of David that came to bring salvation for his people. Mark wrote to show that Jesus was the suffering servant. He focused on the deity of Christ and his role as the humble servant who laid down his life for sinners. He repeatedly highlights that Jesus is God and that only his sacrificial death brings life to those who believe in his name. But since Mark has a primarily Gentile audience in his mind as he's writing, he does not include the same messianic promises that we find throughout Matthew. Luke also wrote to a Gentile audience, but he emphasized a complementary perspective of the person and work of Jesus. Luke depicts Jesus as the son of man who came to die for all kinds of people, both Jew and Gentile. Luke shows Jesus as the perfect God-man who came to identify with sinful mankind and give himself as our righteous substitute. John, the fourth gospel writer, wrote much later than the other three gospels. He was writing toward the end of his life when there were false teachings sprouting up about Christ's persecuted church and about Christ himself. And he wanted to write to both defend the incarnation of Jesus against this growing Gnosticism, as well as seek to evangelize the lost. And we find his purpose stated clearly at the end of John chapter 20. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These different yet complementary purposes are why God provided four gospel accounts, so that we would behold more of the greatness of Christ, that we would bow before him, that we would believe in him and be granted eternal life with him forever. A second genre we find in the New Testament is in the book of Acts. Excuse me. This was written by Luke as a sequel or a continuation of his gospel account. But it was written to tell the story of the expansion of the gospel and the establishment of Christ's church around the world. It records the transitional period in God's program as he begins pouring out new blessings for those in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. At Christ's ascension, he commissions his followers to proclaim the good news of salvation through Christ and to carry this message to all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world, he said. And the book of Acts shows Christ's mission being carried out. 
It was carried out through the church with the empowerment of the promised Holy Spirit. Reading through Acts also lays out much of the context of the churches being established throughout the Roman Empire. We see churches like Galatia and Ephesus and churches planted in Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and Rome. And these really provide a context for our third genre we find in the New Testament referred to as the epistles. These were the letters written to either a person, a church, or multiple churches. Several were written to address specific issues and situations such as false teaching or division stirring up within the church. Some were written more generally to encourage and strengthen the early church doctrinally, to believe the truth and to hold fast and endure. Reading through the epistles, we ought to identify what the occasion was for each writing. Setting this context of the author's intent for their original audience is essential for us to apply these truths rightly in our own lives today. Fourth and finally, we have the apocalyptic genre. The book of Revelation is the only New Testament book in this genre. This book was written as a record of what God revealed to the Apostle John regarding future events. And although we find this genre in Old Testament books like portions of Daniel and Ezekiel, Revelation is the definitive work on the second coming of Christ. But reading this book is different than reading Luke, and it's different than reading Philippians. Often vivid images and symbols are used and explained as depictions of future events. But the purpose of Revelation is right in line with its fellow books in the New Testament. It's to encourage believers to hope in Christ, who will return to establish his kingdom. He will defeat sin and Satan and death forever on our behalf. And he will reign and rule with his perfected people for all eternity. Having looked through the relationship of the New Testament to the Old, the setting of the New Testament, and the composition of it, we've arrived at our final topic of our New Testament overview. And we've saved the best for last. This is the theme for the New Testament. And the reason that this is the best is because there is really a, a perfect and primary theme for the New Testament. All the elements of the setting and the style of writing, all the ink spilled and recording and copying and propagating, it all points to one theme, one person, and that's Jesus Christ. The overarching purpose is that Jesus Christ is the only hope for salvation. Everything in the New Testament is related to Christ. The New Testament shows us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the only Savior and Lord over all things. Jesus is the second Adam, the one foretold of in Genesis 3.15, who would crush the head of the serpent. He obeyed where Adam did not. Adam cast humanity into death, but Jesus gives life to all those who trust in him. The New Testament shows that Jesus came to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, that though his offspring, that through his offspring all the nations would be blessed. Jews and Gentiles both can receive the blessing of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Jesus is the great offspring of Abraham. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is supreme above all other power and authority, that he is co-equal with the Father in glory, 
and currently seated at the right hand of the Father. It shows that Jesus is the true Son of David, who will establish his kingdom when he comes again, fulfilling his promises to Israel in the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. It tells us of Jesus' love for us, that even though he, with all power and authority as God in heaven, would come and humble himself, that he would take the form of a servant and die a shameful death on a cross. And it shows us that he did so for the glory of God. He did so for the joy that was set before him, and he did so for our sake. The New Testament tells us that Jesus inaugurates the new covenant promised in Jeremiah. His death provided a way for all to know the living God, to be forgiven of their sins, and to receive new hearts. It tells us that Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit as a seal of this new covenant, the guarantee of future inheritance with Christ. The Spirit applies salvation to us and leads us in sanctification throughout our lives. The New Testament also tells us that Jesus also rose from the grave, according to the scriptures. And as the firstborn of the dead, he made a way for all who trust in him to experience his resurrection life. The New Testament shows us that Jesus fulfilled God's promises and did not fail in any of his purposes. And it tells us that those aspects of God's promises that are not yet fulfilled have not been forgotten. They too will be fulfilled when Christ comes again. Jesus is the theme of the New Testament. We began studying the Old Testament because it is truly God's word and it gives us truth that the New Testament does not. It sets the background for God's promises which point forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. We wouldn't understand the importance of the New Testament without the Old. And yet as we read the Old Testament, it all points forward to the coming of Jesus He is the theme of the New Testament and truly the center of all scripture. The New Testament reveals all of this about Christ, but it also applies these truths in many areas of our lives. The New Testament shows us how believing in Jesus affects our relationship with other people. The epistles speak to the relationship between rich and poor, between men and women, husbands and wives, between children and parents, Slaves and masters, subjects and ruling authorities. And the New Testament reveals God's plan for the church, this new community of believers in Christ for whom he died and with whom he identifies. It shows us how to interact with one another in the church body. It tells us to value God's word and the commands in Scripture tell us as the church to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the dying world. The New Testament gives us our marching orders for life in the church. And all of it is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And while the New Testament shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of so many promises in the past, and that knowing him changes how we live in the present, it also shows us his promises and purposes for the future to come. It tells us that Jesus will come back again. And when Jesus returns, he will come with his saints to establish his millennial kingdom, fulfilling his promises to Israel 
and an earthly kingdom in the promised land, displaying both his faithfulness, his power, and his authority. And all those who trusted in Christ throughout all of history will be glorified and will dwell with Christ for all eternity. The New Testament ends by proclaiming these truths and it calls us to trust in our coming eternal King, King Jesus. The New Testament shows how Jesus affects every area of our lives, be it our relationship with God, our view of the law, our understanding of sin, how we handle conflict, how we handle our money, how we use our time on this earth, how we should speak with one another, how we treat our spouse, how we think about singleness. Everything and all of it, Jesus speaks to it. And the New Testament shows us the person of Jesus Christ, that this is God in the flesh. And trusting in Jesus is what changes everything. And our prayer, as we continue in our tour through the Bible, as we walk book by book through the New Testament, is that together we would behold Jesus Christ. That our faith as a church would be strengthened. That our love for him would grow. And that we would be transformed into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.